0: I've never had a moment's doubt about whether I should be a writer. I love every aspect of it. I love meeting people, I love talking to them, I love reporting, I love the detective work, I love the physical act of writing, I like editing, I like being edited, I love polishing. There's nothing about the process I don't like, like I love all of it.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Tourist Information. My guest this week is the journalist and author Chris Jones. He really made his name at Esquire but started out in Canada working for the National Post. His first book was about a year in boxing. This was an interesting conversation. Um, Jones is very active on Twitter. I think he really puts himself out there in his pieces and on social media and I think he kind of offered us a bit of a backstage pass into what has made him uh, have such an impact as a journalist by some instability in his career. It's a, <laughs> the backstory of how he got into Esquire and some of the demons that he's fought over his life and I think being pretty upfront about some battles with depression and suicidal ideation um, I really appreciated his candor. I went at it because I just think myself and many of the people I know it can help to hear even very successful people uh, don't lose some of these demons that follow them and some of that ambivalence we carry about what we're doing or who we are, uh, to get into it, it's, it's a little comforting to know we're not alone in some of those feelings, so uh, this, this was uh, an interesting conversation. I'm painting as if it was pretty <laughs> dark, but there was a lot of laughter there too and he, he really had a wonderful laugh and uh, so it was fun to have a chat with him because I've admired his work for a long time well so why don't we why don't we just start with some of the boxing stuff and then we can jump jump around
0: after so i didn't know about your boxing stuff either to be honest like i didn't know we had like i was talking to you as like a magic guy
1: yeah i I, I am not a magic guy
0: it just uh, happened to dovetail yeah that's hilarious yeah
1: well, but like you, I mean, you got your master's degree in urban development, naturally specializing in hockey arena design.
0: It's true. Did not use clearly, for one second.
1: Clearly that guy is going to be a two-time National Magazine Award winner, right?
0: And, and what's it, what your degree is
1: in? My degree is in dropping out of high school and getting an education
0: in Cuba. And Fabulous. We have Cuba in common, too. I don't know if you know that. I don't know that. How do we have Cuba in common? Well, I, I, as a Canadian, Cuba's like we were just al- we're allowed to go to Cuba. So I, I went to Cuba. I've been to Cuba probably ten times. Like Havana's because of boxing and because of baseball and Hemingway and all that nonsense. Like I, Havana was like where I went. It was like where I went with my friends all the time.
1: I mean, I was hooked into it for exactly the same reasons you said, the nexus of Hemingway, uh, my dad talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis while he was in high school and, you know, saying this is the closest the world ever came to oblivion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm thinking, how did this little island, how was it one of the three members of that hostile environment? I know,
0: yeah. And the history of it, like that, like, in the history of it, yeah. But sports, but also like you know that '30s sort of mob time is super interesting. Like the yeah. dog tracks and the casinos, and, um, and I love old buildings, you know, because it's like weirdly preserved. It's you know, I don't know. I haven't been to Havana now in probably ten years, so I imagine it's dramatically changed. But but I used to love going because there wasn't cell phones or anything. Right, like it was like going back in time. It was like a, yeah, and these guys would like rent girlfriends for boxes of diapers and stuff. And it was just a weird place. I guess I don't know. I liked it.
1: Well, and I and I think like also for we share in common going to Cuba that I was an outsider of the United States, but had an entirely favorable opinion of it relative to the media that I was exposed to. And you go to Cuba. And Americans are, I mean, they're certainly obsessed with Americans, but I'm like, I'm not so much time warping into Cuba, I'm time warping into the America of a white man's wet dream version of America. Yeah. (laughs) And they want this to stop, because it needs to become what, Puerto Rico? (laughs) Like, it needs to be this with... Gary Queen being open all the time or whatever? Yeah,
0: that's what I was worried about. I was worried about American chains coming. I was like, I don't want to go to Havana and have an olive garden in that building. Like, right. I want it to be, you know, it's like, and it was the one place on earth you could sound like me. And people would go, oh, what part of Canada are you from?
1: Totally true.
0: Because there's no Americans. So, like, if oh, you no. sound like me anywhere else, it's like, oh, you're from the States. No, Canadian, blah, blah, blah.
1: Or to, I mean, I remember first because I got there February two thousand, right around the time of Elian Gonzalez, and I see oh. all these Terry Fox shirts on Cubans, and I was like, uh "What the fuck?" <laughs> the, the marathon of hope oh, somehow includes like the Cuban island. Like, excuse me, I it was just so many, such a funhouse mirror. It's like the end of the lady from Shanghai kind of experience for me. It's awesome.
0: No, it's you, like, uh, when like you go to Africa and you see all like the losing the losing finals, right? Like they said, all the you know, you go to like South Africa and all these people wearing whatever, whoever the Cubs beat in 2016, you know, like all the Cleveland Indian World Series champion shirts. And it's right. like, yeah, it's just weird. And,
1: and, and what was your tie in with boxing there? Because I mean, I went because Felix Sabone. Is offered $25 million to fight Mike Tyson. And I thought, I have to know who these people are. I have to know what the fuck is going on with people like this.
0: Uh, yeah, I didn't go for a specific fighter. I can't remember the name of the arena now. The arena that's in Havana.
1: Kid Chocolate.
0: There, there, is that the arena? Kid Chocolate? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I just went to a bunch of fights. I got into boxing like... I had a very brief period where I decided I was going to be a fighter. Um, And I went to Cuba as part of that sort of pilgrimage. It was like, my first time there was definitely a boxing slash Hemingway thing. And then, I don't remember when, the Orioles played there.
1: 93, I think.
0: They they went down and I, you know. No, it had to be later than that because I went. I think. I could be wrong. But it's like, I guess there was a bunch of reasons to go. Plus, it was hot. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, we just need to get out of here for a while. And so it was like... Plus, you, I could pay for my trips with cigars.
1: Right. right. That's totally true. 1999.
0: 1999. I'm just looking yeah. it up now. Yeah, yeah. so I was on paper. So I could, like, I could go to Cuba, buy two boxes of cigars, bring them back, and sell them, and pay for my trip. It I goes-
1: did this... I did the same thing with tracksuits. If you get one of those Cuban tracksuits that their Olympic athletes wore, uh, they yeah. they'd have a stash. Because you couldn't buy a Cuba Adidas tracksuit anywhere but
0: Cuba. Oh, I didn't even think of that. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, you could you pay seventy bucks for it and you could sell it on eBay for four hundred dollars. So you could oh just buy God. five of them.
0: I fully missed out. I totally <laughs> missed out.
1: So you wanted to be a boxer? How does how does that happen? Were you an amateur fighter? in, in your you're growing up outside Toronto?
0: Yeah, um, I was not exposed to boxing at all as a kid. Well, I was exposed to it. I mean, I knew it existed, um, but I didn't participate in it. I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town. There was no fights. Um, but then when I started, when I started the uh, I started the National Post newspaper, '98. All the big sports were taken. I was like a news sports writer. Um, in Canada, Hockey's the big sport. So like the senior guys were doing hockey. Uh, we had a guy doing basketball. We had another guy doing baseball. I didn't have a sport. And boxing was uncovered. Like boxing had not been claimed. Um, and so I was literally in the newsroom and we had TVs all over the place. And there was a fight on the television. And I was like, oh, I should do boxing. And I should I should rewind. When I was in university, there was uh, an amazing documentary that doesn't get talked about much anymore. But when we were kings, uh, oh yeah, which was my, about
1: my first mentor. My first mentor in film was he was walking around an arena, and there's a guy next to me, an attorney who used to work for Mike Tyson and Don King, Mike Marlin. He's like, if you're trying to make a documentary, you should go talk to him. And I said, who? I just see some old guy shuffling oh. by, and he's like, it's Leon Gass. Go talk to him. Oh God. Yeah,
0: That movie made an impression on me. me too. And in fact, the very first thing I wrote as like a sample to get a job, because you know I, I didn't do journalism in school. I wrote a thing about, there's a scene in When We Were Kings where Ali is hitting a heavy bag, and then he gets like a rub down afterwards, his back. Mm-hmm. And there was something about his back where I was like, you only get a back like that if you're a fighter. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, I wrote this piece called The Back of the Fighter. And it was the very first thing I wrote that I sent in as a sample and got my gig. I got my job. Um, so boxing, had, like, that's when boxing sort of entered my universe. I read a lot of Norman Mailer after that, George Plimpton, because they were in that movie. Um, and then when I got to the paper, you know, I saw this. I don't even remember what fight it was. I saw this fight on the TV and I was like, oh, I should be the boxing writer. Um, and I got so into writing about it that I decided, oh, I should box, um, which is a terrible idea. Like I, <laughs> like, you know, I would have been like 20, 23 or 20, 23, I guess, like too old to start, to start probably.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had no discernible skill as a fighter. I could take a punch. Uh, I have a huge head. And I could duck I could duck it and hurt people's hands with the top of my head. Um, but I had limited power, I've got short arms, like I'm like built like a T-Rex. But I guess I loved it. I just love I love the sport. I love boxers. Like the best part of fighting is the are the fighters. And if sure. you write about it, like you just fall in love with these guys, and they're the best athletes to write about. Um, and so it was all kind of a it was all kind of a puzzle for me. It was like you know, I had that little sort of bump from when we were kings, and of course, I was like, you know, like every other young writer, male, insecure. I read Hemingway, and so you got fighting that way, and then, and then it worked. You know, it just started, and and as it. What happened,
1: did you? Sorry to interrupt, but what did no. you read of Hemingway?
0: Oh, all of it. Hemingway was like my. It's such a cliche now, and I'm almost embarrassed by it. Although I still love like. I don't know about you. Did you go through a Hemingway phase? Like every,
1: it's the title of my fucking book. The publishers forced me to put it on the book. <laughs>
0: c- c- clear, clearly, I am I worse at. I wasn't,
1: I, wasn't sure if that
0: was, I wasn't sure if that was like yours. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that's mine because that's the that's a really positive association in t- today's milieu. Is,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Right. No.
0: Yeah, no, I misfired there. Um, <laughs> but but it's like, well, you know, you go through a, every, you go through a phase, you go through a phase, and it's like, yeah, I read everything, and then of course I went everywhere. I was like, oh well, clearly I gotta go run with the bulls, and I gotta go to Cuba and fish, and I gotta, and you, Key West, and you behave like an idiot. And then when you get older, you realize like, eh, maybe I don't want to, you know, die with a shotgun in my mouth and like, leave a. Disaster in my wake. Um, you know, but but at that time Hemingway was big for me and the fighting and it was all all parts of a puzzle.
1: Mm. And so when you go to Cuba, are you like I mean I went there and it took two days to get trained by a two time Olympic champion for six bucks. Like what <laughs> what was your what was your deal going there? Think, Did you, you wanted to watch or to train or to, Watched, to
0: do what? I, was train. I, I joined a boxing gym in Toronto. Um, and I wanted, I just wanted, you know. The other thing, going back to when we were kings, like Plimpton and Mailer and stuff, go to Zaire for six weeks. Like that's what I thought writing about fights was. I was like, oh. oh my god, I'm gonna go to the Philippines. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to Africa, and I'm gonna. And when I started covering boxing, it was just like late '90s, ninety 90% percent of fights were in Vegas, right? A couple in New York or Jersey but it wasn't like you were going to Burkina Faso to watch a fight. Like it was, um, <laughs> uh, so for me it was like Cuba was sort of this chance to have that exoticism, you know, yeah. like that, um, uh, plus baseball, plus hot weather, plus, you know, it was just, yeah, I went down there and worked out with, I don't even remember the guy's name. He probably wasn't even a boxer for all I know. He was probably some guy on the beach. Um, trying to, I, I can't I can't find his name but yeah well, just once you Cuban took it all in you know
1: well and tell me Chris how you go from getting your ma- where did you go to school by the way uh, University of Toronto was my grad school beautiful school I, I really uh, like that camp oh, you had Morley Callahan there speaking of Hemingway.
0: yeah not when I was, my headmaster was a guy named well the year I got to he died the year I got there it was robertson davies who's like a big oh canadian
1: yeah um, poet I think right
0: no yeah poet novelist just a very eminent very canadian though he's like the tragedy hip like did not translate outside of canada but um and so yeah I went to the university of toronto I didn't love it it was too big for me but toronto at that time had a good selection of, of boxing gyms um And it was the one favorable thing about going there for me. I did not love the University of Toronto. Well,
1: but I mean, you're at a very good school. You're studying to design hockey arenas like a devoted Canadian. Yes. Um, That is not typically the uh, CB of uh, an Esquire Hemingway-esque I mean, you're in the right city with the whole Hemingway thing. He's at the Toronto Star for his first game. Yeah, that's
0: exactly right. Yeah.
1: You know, no, no, I'm, I've, I've, uh, I've become friends with his grandkids a little bit. So I've been trying to get the inside scoop on a number of stuff I was curious about. Oh, that's awesome. Um, like you, like you, I had to do the running of the bulls, um, which was not fun. I, I like. Overrated. I like my sphincter to not be intruded upon. It's just something that just likes... It, it's antisocial. And uh, particularly...
0: Some, some sphincters are extroverts. Years. Some are introverts. So you know.
1: Some are extroverted. No judgment whatsoever. But when I see several pairs of horns attached to four tons of Mura flesh, my sphincter does not need to make friends with them. I'm very pro-Spain. But, but yeah. Um, but I, but I wonder like your first fight is covering, uh, probably my favorite person in boxing
0: was Roy Jones Jr. Oh, yeah. Okay. How do you know that's? Oh, of course. The book, yeah. Because I do research, Chris. Yeah, you do research. Yeah. 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 Yes. That was my first fight. It was very fortuitous because Roy Jones was fighting a Canadian, Otis Grant. So, uh, Just as I was deciding I was going to be a boxing writer, you know, there was an actually reasonably big fight involving a Canadian. Um, It worked out great. Yeah. So, yeah, my first fight Otis Grant versus Roy Jones Jr. And I thought, this is how much, Bryn, this is how stupid I was, how naive I was. I thought Otis Grant was going to win. Really? Well, because I liked him. He's Canadian. He's Canadian. He was a school teacher. He'd come out of a car accident. Lovely guy. He was actually a wonderful introduction. Like, if you're going to, you know, talk to a fighter for the first time, you could do a lot worse than notice, Grant. He had a fabulous um, manager named Russ Amber, who... Oh, yeah. Great commentator. Commentator.
1: On TSN.
0: On TSN. He often does the Olympics and stuff like that. And Russ was like, you know, a quote machine and knew I was knew I was a rookie. And was gentle and kind and probably saw a very easy bark to tell a story that he wanted to tell. Um, and uh, and so I went into that fight convinced that Otis Grant was going to win. And there's another, there's a very big Canadian uh, sports writer, boxing writer, named Stephen Brunt, who worked for the rival our rival paper. but And he was at that fight. He was very kind to me. He took me in, even though we worked for competing publications. And I told him of my opinion. <laughs> I remember Brunt was just like he's not going to win like like he has a 0% chance of winning this fight Uh, and so it was another one of those and I can't remember it was like the 5th round maybe Jones kind of carried him a little bit went to the 5th and I think Russ threw in the towel Um, but it was an education in like the reality of fights that like it's not who you want to win it's it's not always the biggest heart (laughs) like some guys are just really good and Roy Jones at that point was the best a titan. Yeah, just a, a machine. The other the other thing, yeah, my other big memory of that fight it was my first experience of a, a weight cut, a real weight cut and weigh-in. Mm. And I still remember Jones getting off the scale uh, and someone handing him a whole turkey or chicken still in the roasting pan. And Jones sitting on the stage with this bird on his lap and just eating it with his hands as he, like, talked to us. And he just consumed, like, a 10-pound chicken or turkey, Jeez. whatever the hell it was. As he, and, You know, because he'd been cutting all the weight. And he's just like, oh, God. <laughs> and, and I guess every quote had, like, poultry sprayed through the air with it. Um, yeah. I remember going, God, these guys really do cut a lot of weight.
1: Oh and mm. if you if you meet his family like I met him in Pensacola to do a profile and he took me to meet the dad and the the uncles and the aunts and they're all very large people. Oh really? So they, re- really? Very large. Yeah. And so even his wife made a point to say my husband is the greatest athlete in history who had the worst diet ever. He had he had some good genetics and he worked his ass off but like Way that you meet these relatives, like the Jones family, are not lean. They're not lipped. lean people. No, by any
0: stretch. He was very lean. I remember thinking he was like, like Otis looked a little thick next to Roy Jones, and it was, and Otis was not a big guy. It was like, yeah, it was a great first fight, to be honest. It taught me a lot in a very gentle way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You get to see the top guy, you know, a once in a generation talent at the peak of his talent. Uh that timing is interesting.
0: And very so, accessible. He was still accessible. He was really accessible. Like he talked all the time.
1: <laughs> and and so shortly after this you embark on your own book Falling Hard 2002 where for a year you dive right into the boxing world. This is a New York Times bestseller just like my attempt at writing about boxing was selling millions of copies around the world
0: 912 both of us. 912 yeah, I think, copies
1: I think I'm at 1250
0: or something so you, you sold uh, I can't 30% more than me well done I You'd you crush.
1: know. <laughs> so what was it like you know you got it at an era that was very different than than when I was covering it 10 years later but I mean you're getting to Don King you're getting Mike Tyson post prison um this is a weird, dirty, ugly gross era in a lot of ways. So I'm yeah. just curious. So so that year, what happens? You pitch this to is it Canadian publisher or you sell it in the US?
0: Canadian publisher. That was across the street from the newspaper. Okay. Canada's very small. Uh, yeah, I just I was like I had read a book um this is the most Canadian thing I'll ever I'm I'm like almost embarrassed to how Canadian in all of this is. There was a book called Hardcore Road Show, which was written by the writer of a movie called Hardcore Logo. Canadian I film. That. Do you? Canadian film about a oh, fictional yeah. punk band. Yep. Um, and the book was like very edgy and like cool. Um, and the publisher of that book happened to be across the street from the newspaper. And I went and visited them, and I said, "Hey, if I write a book, um and they were into it and yeah I, I, yeah at that point, I was already several fights in like i didn't I didn't know what that year was going to hold like I, at that point I was already I was fighting and already like um I can't remember you know I was four or five fights into my my career. I'm putting air quotes for people who can't see that um and, uh, yeah, they went for it kind of stupidly. Well, no, I was stupid in hindsight because I signed a two-book deal, which you should never do because in between book one and book two, you might suddenly become more popular as a writer. And, boy, then are you costing yourself a whole lot of money. But, anyway, I'm rambling. Yes, so I wrote that book at a young age, and I'm humiliated by it. Am, I'm actually grateful it did not sell very well
1: what was the basic premise that you were trying to go out and, and prove in, in writing the book or what was the agenda with it? Um,
0: I think that was probably part of the problem is I didn't really think about like what the theme of the book should be. Like it, it was just a young guy, you know, I could probably write a good book. I could probably write a good book now about my time in boxing then because I'm, wiser about everything now and like I was so green um, and so naive about a lot of things and still trying to figure m- me out like still trying to figure out who I was um, uh, you know I think I, w- I was like quite um, I think one of the reasons I don't love that book is I don't like who I was then particularly mm. because I was like really un- I was that awful kind of like Young man, unsure of yourself, which makes you overcompensate and become kind of a dick. Um, and I, I just, I, I was, I was violent. Uh, I got into a ton of like, I mean, I'm not talking about the boxing gym. I got into a ton of fights. Um, I had a weird relationship with violence. I was. Um, I thought, you know, that Hemingway, Norman Mailer, like you're supposed, like if you wanted to be one of those writers, you had to be kind of bigger than life, and and so the book, like I'm trying to, I think there's just like there's some terrible scenes in the book which were very honest, but like where I'm, you know, imagining or visiting violence on people, and uh, I'm just not, I'm not like that now, and so it's it's sort of. uh, Maybe I should go back to read it in some way. It's just I I don't know. It's it, it was I didn't have an an agenda. It was just me being an idiot watching fights. Like that's what that book is. There's no theme, there's no larger point to it. It has no arc. Like I don't learn anything. I got disappointed. I mean, that's sort of the theme of that book. Is like at that point, like you say, it was kind of a dirty gross time in fights, and it was like they always let you down. Like those that was a bad 99 like ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand was like, yeah, it was Tyson came out, you know, Tyson reborn or whatever. But you know, he fights Francois Botha, like that's my Tyson fight, uh, where he tries yeah, to break Botha's arms. Yeah, Botha, Botha's winning the whole fight and then just gets stupid and gets clocked and like, uh, it was Lennox Lewis fighting Evander Holyfield and that getting the first one getting ruled a draw when it was clearly not a draw you know it was like jug shenanigans and a lot of like paper tigers Nassim hamed was a big fighter at the time um yeah and you know we know what happened to him and um there there were some very good like arturo gotti was there and and i love gotti um and so there were some good fighters in the mix but it was just kind of a I don't know what it was. It was like a weird sort of boxing kind of falling apart, hanging on, and just the bad parts of boxing being the weirdly survivable ones. I don't know. Did you get to, like,
1: what kind of people did you get close to? A lot of your journalism, you're renowned for your reporting um, for The Access, and I wonder... Did you? I mean, you got to Don King. Did you get to Tyson? Did you get to Holyfield? Did you get to some of these people?
0: Not the way I would have. Not the way I would have liked. And that's something that that's another thing about boxing at that time. Or, well, I'm, I imagine today, boxing boxing was extremely cliquey. Yeah, it was extremely insular, uh, including the fight writers, and I wanted nothing more than be part of that group. You know, like, Mm. I was, I was like, I want to, I want to be with these guys, and, and, you know, I was just some idiot kid from Toronto, like, of course, they didn't want to hang out with me, and so, you know, I, I remember, like, literally, like, there being a circle of fight writers at a press conference or whatever, and trying to join the circle, and getting, like, shouldered out of it, and just, like, uh, you know, I did not at all belong. So, you know, yeah, later in life, like access became a huge deal for me and spending time with people became a huge deal for me. But at that point, like the fighters, I really got to know were the Canadians like Otis Grant, Arturo Gatti, um, Billy Irwin, like, you know, those are the guys I spent real time with Lennox Lewis because he was sort of Canadian. Um, but not like Holyfield or Tyson or – no, I never spent a minute with them outside of any kind of like public setting.
1: It's so it's such an interesting uh, microcosm to, to have the Canadian fighters try to make it in the U.S. I mean very similar to us as journalists, as Canadians trying to make it in the U.S. or when you're seeing singers do it, movie stars do it, comedians do it. I remember a guy who would come to the gym that I trained at the Astoria named Manny Sobral, and he had like one of those bullshit titles – as a welterweight, okay, and he and he had one more fight, a tune-up fight, before he he had lined up getting a De La Hoya fight, like a payday fight. Oh, and he and he fought somebody, I think in Alberta, bad boy, something or other, and broke his leg in the second or third round, and fought another two rounds before he was knocked out. And Manny Sobral, his perfect record, the quote-unquote fighting schoolteacher who was from Spain originally, that was basically the end of his career. And him coming back to the gym where the swagger was, this guy's a real world champion. He's not a Canadian champion. Right. He's a world champion. He's one fight away from maybe fight, beating De La Hoya to your absolutely nothing.
0: Right. Cause it all, yeah, it just takes that one to go sideways. And then it's like... Uh, our one... I mean, people are sort of... Actually, one guy I spent a lot of time with, um, an interesting guy, uh, is Trevor Burbick. Oh,
1: interesting. Who
0: Tyson took the title from. Sure. Jamaican-born, but was sort of Canadian. Um, But, uh, like, he was one of our, you know, Trevor Burbick was, like, an important Canadian fighter, even though he was, I mean, he was crazier than a shithouse rat in the end, and he, 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 you know, went very sideways. But he, like, I think back to like you claimed him. You know, it's like <laughs> we'll take yeah. anyone. Trevor Burke, we'll take Trevor Burbick. I mean, I don't know if you can picture Trevor Burbick, like flopping around the ring after Tyson beat him silly. But oh um, yeah, like some very dramatic
1: three stiff, times. Yeah, three stiff, times. L-
0: that- the, the stiff legs, the kind of like oh yeah, yeah. Burbick popping up, But it was like uh, yeah yeah so that's another example of a guy who you sort of hold on, like Canada does have this weird like need for Canadians to be successful overseas um and the, and the, and like our one big guy, Lennox Lewis, became british right because After accent, winning the Olympics like and he, That too yeah, like all of a sudden he talks with like this weird British accent, and we were like, but you're it you didn't sound like that a year ago, like what just happened so like Canada had this like you know, especially in the heavyweight division, had this sort of weird relationship with fights where either some, some, yeah, they would leave us or not quite make it, or like you say, fall like one fight short, you know, it was like, it happened all the time.
1: Well, I mean, Ryan Gosling, one of Hollywood's biggest A-list actors, sounds more 1940s Brooklyn than Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. And don't talk Don't
0: talk shit about Ryan Gosling. He's going <laughs> to be on our money. He's, uh... He is. Him and Ryan Reynolds together. I mean, we got the two best Ryans. Uh,
1: True. But the accent, like, that's what's so yeah. interesting to me, is, like, the code switching is so pronounced. Like, that is not a suburban Toronto accent. No. It's, no, it's, we'll it's, right it's there, a actually. construct that's 75 years old. Right, yeah. right. So yeah. so you finished your, you finish your book... Uh, it is not the smash success that you hoped. I think you're wearing a CVC t-shirt at the moment, too, which, big respect. Thank you. My dad was doing documentaries for them in the 1970s, so that is the oh. first time I've seen that in a long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for listeners, he has lowered the camera view so that I can revisit. My father would appreciate if this was not just an audio thing so he could see that.
0: See the logo. You know, this shirt, speaking of fights, this shirt got me in a fight. Um, in an airport security line, customs line in Toronto, where a guy, I'd just been in an emergency landing. I'd had a very bad day, Bryn. I'd been in an emergency landing. There's a massive customs line in Toronto. I'm wearing this shirt. And the guy in front of me, he's like 50. And he just keeps looking at me. He's got his wife and his like two kids who are like 20 and 18, these two girls. And he just keeps looking at me, and I'm willing him not to say anything to me. Like, I'm just like, do not engage me at this moment in time. I'm not in a good place. And he turns around and he goes, So, uh, so you're a fan of the Communist Broadcasting Corporation?
1: Oh, fuck.
0: Okay. <laughs> fucking idiot. And I guess, <laughs> and I was like, Well, here it is. And I was like, You know, go fuck yourself, you fucking asshole. You fuck. I'm not in the mood, blah, 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 blah. blah. Uh, and he just kept going. I'm going to stand up for freedom and democracy. And, uh, he's like, I should have worn a shirt that said CSI on it for can't stand idiots. And I was like, well, you should have worn a shirt with a pocket. Put your fucking teeth in it. And then the his daughters were like, please leave my dad alone. And I was like, your dad needs to stop talking shit <laughs> to strangers in airports. Anyway, uh. yeah. so the shirt, shirt has some... Uh, you know, here I am saying to you that I'm not the guy I was when I was 24. Uh, and that was fairly recent where I nearly engaged in. <laughs> Fist well, a airport security line.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you about it, and I I know that you're uncomfortable with it. Um,
0: oh, perfect! What a great lead-in. Well, to ask you about this thing that you're super uncomfortable. With. I well, can't I, wait. Brad. I know I'm all you're,
1: No, but I but you know you, I my view maybe you differ is touching on this subject is of some benefit because I think it is a kind of taboo thing, which is when you did the long-form interview toward the end, it was brought up an article that you did that was not very easy to locate, was about your own struggles with depression, a little bit of suicide, and it's a pretty consistent theme in the way that I have approached boxing that I think almost all of these guys are battling where they came from, where there's abuse, um, mm-hmm. a lot of mental health stuff, Roy mm-hmm. Jones, the big takeaway of spending a week with him was he has been either suicidal or murderous since about the age of 10. That's not me editorializing. Those are his words. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyson, I think, uh, oh, yeah. when I, yeah, and, and sexually molested and, Always, like, one of the things he said to me when I first got to him is he said, who are your other heroes? If I was your hero when, when you were a kid, who else? And I thought about it, and it was the first time I recognized that they were all suicides. And he went, is that a prerequisite with you or something? It and is. I thought, well, I hadn't thought of that, but... Because,
0: um, like, who else is there? As, as far as suicides? No, as far as your heroes who were, like, how no, well, I...
1: Well, Hemingway at the time. But I mean, Bobby Fisher was a kind of suicide. J.D. Salinger was a kind of artistic suicide. Um, Van Gogh was a suicide. Um, it was a pretty big theme. It's a theme that I've definitely, I think, to avoid, not to avoid, but to grapple with some of my struggles with Despair. I don't know that I felt depression, but certainly despair or suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have really fallen into a lot of biographies to explore how people in different times grappled with the, ob- the central obstacles of their lives and their own mental state. And some of these people, you get to have their whole life's worth of letters to see what they're really, you know, what's behind a lot of the work. Um, but I noticed once where I was asked asked on uh, to do a podcast with Brian Koppelman, who who's the creator of mm-hmm. Billions and Rounders, and he had blurbed my book. Um, Simon and Schuster sent it to him. He blurbed it. He made a big point that he doesn't do that very often. And when I came on, almost 80% of what he wanted to talk about was my how dark a writer I am and how despairingly suicidal i seem to be all the time which i don't think of myself that way i don't think most of my friends would describe me that way but the way you talked about it was uh where i don't think you were quite so shoehorned as i was during the i knew there's only an hour to talk and you can't just be like well there's a little more nuance to this brian i i, I mean i'm i'm open yeah. to discussing it but i it seems yeah. like you want to go somewhere so i guess i'll go there but uh I don't know what you want me to say about this. Um, I wonder, as you're confronting boxing and in a difficult time, these are pretty damaged people. It sounds like, from from what I've heard in in a limited way, so I don't mean to to overstep boundaries, um, Hemingway is somebody you're drawn to. Mm -hmm. One of the characteristics of suicide that I find particularly fascinating is it forces you to look at the life through the prism of the suicide. It's impossible – like it becomes suicide soup. It's not a garnish to a – so I I just wondered – You know, you've had a lot of success. You were talking about striving for awards and competitiveness, and it was sort of pointed out to you in the long form podcast. Is that to overcompensate for something? I don't have any agenda bringing this up. I'm just curious. When you were talking about it, it felt very honest and Mm -hmm. it made me connect to you in a way that was unexpected.
0: Well, that's nice of you. That was, I remember what you're talking about. That was right at the end of that conversation.
1: That's right. It
0: it was like, Evan and I had talked for a while, and I think he was nervous to bring it up. Um, and you should not be nervous to bring it up. I appreciate the way you did bring it up. Um, but it's an important topic. Uh, and it's something that we don't talk about. You know, there's that bell, let's talk day now, which is like hugely valuable. Like, it is something that people yeah. need to talk about. And for me, it was like, I, I wasn't, I'm not like Roy Jones. Like, I wasn't always like that. Like, it, it happened late for me um i had a perfect childhood two loving parents um great friends we were kind of poor but my parents ended up being very successful and so you know by the you know i i think i was marked by our early struggles a little bit but not in any kind of grievous way i don't think and um what did your
1: parents do what did they do they became
0: professors they were professors in the end but we emigrated my mom is English. My dad's Welsh. Uh, when I was a child, we emigrated to Canada, and my dad was a security guard at a jail, basically, and my mom wow. worked. And then, um, and then, you know, eventually worked their way. They became like they wouldn't be able to do it in a million years now, but at that time in the seventies, you could become a professor with you know <laughs> relatively little education. And they,
1: well, communism. Communism has
0: its benefits in <laughs> Canada. I've heard exactly it's just it's free it's education free education yeah yeah so they yeah so they ended up doing very well and we ended up doing very well Um, so for me it wasn't any kind of like deep-seated there was no childhood trauma uh, there was never any kind of sexual assault there was no like inciting incident I was pretty scrappy as a kid but uh, but, but that was about it uh, and even when I was covering fights like that, this period we were talking about with the book, like my early 20s, mid 20s, never had a flash of anything. Totally fine. In fact, my friends would make fun of me for being like, always sort of in some vaguely benign middle. Huh. Like I was never sad and I was never like ecstatic. I was always just fine. I was always like, good. And I didn't even understand when people would be sad. I, I would sort of almost get upset. Um I'd, I'd be like what do you have to be sad about like there's so much worse that your life could like your life could be you know I've, i had a lot of friends who struggled looking back now you know i didn't i couldn't put a label on it at the time and i was like jesus if you're like a white man in canada you're immediately in the top like five percent of the world like you yeah like you don't have to be upset about like uh uh and um you know, I'd be like there's 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 kids starving in Africa and, you know I remember a friend of mine going that doesn't make me less sad <laughs> and right. I was like, well, but it's... because it, for me it was like comparative like it was but you and then I guess when I was probably my late twenties thirties, all of a sudden, I just started getting these i I would just start to swing, and it was it was um I didn't I, I didn't know where it came from it didn't come from any like instant in my life like my life was very good yeah so I when, when, when I used to look at my friends and be like but you should be happy I was I was exactly that guy I was married two great kids dream job lots of money good house like those friend. there was nothing hmm. and um, which makes me realize like this stuff is like a lot of the times is just it's electrical, it's chemical, it's just like it just my brain was not working properly and um, I, had, I, had, I had some sort of like things go wrong like I have Crohn's disease, so I had some stomach problems and um, You know, you talk about, I'm convinced that Kurt Cobain killed himself because of his stomach issues. Like, you have constant abdominal pain. Like, that'll make you a bit bendy. Um, You know, falling hard didn't do anything. The the book I wrote later didn't do much better. Uh, Having two kids when they're young, you know, it's pretty hard. You're not sleeping very well, blah, blah, blah. But there was no, like, Titanic. It's just, like, life. Um, And I would just not, I started not responding to things the way I normally would respond to them. And I, it surfaced at first as like temper, um, you know, I get angry quickly and then I had some weird sort of anxiety OCD stuff that started creeping in. Um, I had this terrible period where I had to write so that everything was justified on the right hand column. Um, but not because like I used the artificial justification, like I would write the fit, uh, And I wrote, like, 6,000-word stories like that, which, which will make you nuts. Like, Whoa. like, change, like, words so that it would fit. And it would look like a serial killer written, like it was like a box, like that. And it's just, like, <laughs> you can't function as a writer that way. Like, you can't. It just doesn't, it's no good. Um, and then it just, then it, it, it became what I now realize was sort of classic depression, I think. And the, the danger of depression is the first time you skid, if it's not something you grow up with, like if you're an adult and it sort of hits you, you don't know what it is. Right. Like you don't recognize it for what it is, and you don't know that that it might lift. You're like, oh, I guess this is just life now. Which is why I think people sometimes end up killing themselves, is because they think that's their way. This is just it's just gonna be pain now, and I don't wanna deal with that. I don't wanna I don't wanna do that. And of course the other the the other thing is you think in your twisted head, you think you're like a burden on the people who love you. Um, that's why I bristle greatly when people talk about suicide being cowardly. Because, you know, it's that you're overriding every natural instinct. Um, right. You know, children know to run away from barking dogs. Like, it's, you're hardwired not to do that. You're hardwired to preserve yourself. And so, if you're in such a state that you're willing to do that, uh, you know it's not cowardly you think you're helping people you love you think you're saving the world the the um burden of having to deal with you you think and you and you're 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 it's 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 out you you're 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 overriding every basic human instinct toward life and you're choosing death and that's like you know it's not cowardly at all it's like an incredibly uh, i don't want to say it's brave but it's 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 not cowardice. Um, and it's, it's, it was, it was rough. I, I, I had a very wobbly period um, and it, it, uh, you know, it affected my whole life. Like I'm divorced now and my depression definitely played no small part in that. Um, uh, you know, it just, it, uh, it's tough when you're, when you're in it, it's tough. And it, but the one thing I will say for people, for listeners who are in it, it will lift eventually and it, it won't lift for everybody the same way. And it might not seem like it's going to go away for a little while. Um, but eventually it, it does it, it, you know, therapy or medication or time or whatever it takes. To, if you can just hang on, eventually it'll come around. And it's, it's, I'm so grateful that I never actually succeeded in any of my efforts. Cause um, you know, life is, Become very good, but but uh, but yeah, there was a while there where it was uh, it was rough, and it wasn't any. I don't have an easy explanation for it. It just hit me like I don't know what the it was. It was it was the water went bad. I don't know how to explain it. It just all of a sudden. And and violence. That whole you talking about violence. Like I was extremely violent not to like my wife or my kids or anything like that, but uh, it would take nothing for me to get in a fight. And like, that's not how you live your life. Like that's not how you live it. That's not, doesn't make you a good person and it doesn't make you like someone other people want to be with and it doesn't, like I would fight over nothing. And it was, um, you know, you don't want to be Begbie from Train Spotting. you don't want to be that guy. And it's just like, that's how it surfaced for me. And I don't, I don't, I have no idea why. I have no, I have no explanation.
1: Well, and I mean, I remember my mother having an explanation for everything that, that was making me sad, or that I wasn't <laughs> sure was sad. she knew what it was, And I remember saying the thing I would most like to hear from you is just, "I don't know."
0: It's so, people are very disinclined to say that about all sorts of things, not just this. People do not: yeah. I like don't know. So it's, it's almost as hard I don't know what's harder it's for people to say, "I don't know," or for people to say, "I'm sorry." Um, both of them seem difficult for people to say <laughs> and, and I don't know why they're hard to say I can say I don't know and I'm sorry so easily but like I there is a time yeah I don't know is often the answer and I think a lot of this a lot of depression a lot of I mean you hear all the time especially after you know someone has killed themselves you know the people who know them talking going god I had no idea have no idea why this happened and you know the person involved probably doesn't know either it just it, it. it Things went things went bad, and it's, I don't know how you. Sometimes that's all it is.
1: Well, and it, it makes me think. I remember watching a documentary after George Michael died, and that wasn't a suicide, but clearly there was a lot of self medicating in his in his life that leads to led him to die of natural causes at fifty three. A lot yeah, of drug yeah. use, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of depression, and he was odd for me because as a kid growing up, when he was like part of this pantheon of Michael Jackson, Madonna, and stuff, Um, I found out that he finally fell in love in his late 20s, finally was kind of openly gay. He didn't want his mother to know he was gay because of the AIDS epidemic. And he gave this interview where he said, it's really hard to have pride in your sexuality when it's never brought you any joy. And (laughs) I, I thought that was my issue with depression was that, I was not bringing happiness anywhere that I went in my life, and it was really making me feel ashamed that I couldn't meet the people I cared about—family members, friends—and knew that I was a burden on them just to show up. With sort of, they would be, they'd like be like, "Well, spend another couple hours with that guy. That guy's just a dark cloud sort yes. of thing." And I was like, "I don't, I don't want to be the fucking dark cloud guy." I, no, I,
0: no one chooses I, to be that. No. Who wants to be fucking Gargamel? Like no one does. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's like, and that's what I was talking about with like the like. You think you're like you think you're saving people. You yeah. think you're doing it like when people call it cowardly. I'm like it's they're they're trying to be selfless. Yeah, they're sick of being in the cloud, and they're like now I can make the cloud go away, and all these people will be spared the misery of my presence. Like that's what they're thinking, and people talk like it's not a rational. Suicide is not rational. Like, people are always looking for an explanation. And it's like, well, it's not math. Like, it didn't... It, it, people are like, well, how could you think that? Well, because his brain was broken. Like, it's not... It's, 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 it's like, how could your leg have two knees? Well, it's because I broke my femur. Like, it, you know, it's like, because that thing isn't working anymore. And it's like... What you, what you described there is exactly it. You don't want to be the cloud. Who wants to be the cloud? No. It's like, no. No. And,
1: and as you say, I don't know where it, I don't know where it, I became a cloud at 9 and it lasted for another 14 years. I was kind of like, what the fuck happened? I was a, th- a very very happy kid, very very um loved kid. You know, not to say everything is idyllically perfect or you know, Norman Rockwell, but um the the transformation sometimes yeah, as you say, to not know how you you've gone into this ditch and not know how to get out of it. Um, I was going to ask you because I mean you were at Esquire for a time. Um, I was I was in Spain a couple years ago. My favorite movie was it was called the, P- the Passenger, with Jack Nicholson playing a journalist who decides to trade in his life with a dead guy, and then find out who the dead guy was, and it turns out he was a Uh, an arms dealer for the war that Jack Nicholson couldn't find as a journalist and sort of went through this existential angst of, what's the point of me being an objective journalist covering anything? And if I don't know whose life this is that I'm taking, at least I won't be able to fuck it up with all of my patterns of behavior, and I'll just give in and become a passenger on this journey. And I was very very drawn to that, and in the end, which is a form of suicide, like that yeah. kind of transference, yeah. and his journey ends a week later in this little hotel across the street from a bullring, which was inspired by Michelangelo Antonioni having read Death in the Afternoon and thought, perfect setting. And as I'm driving out there, on the radio, I hear about Anthony Bourdain's suicide. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And... It seemed like the whole world was gripping for a little while, or a big chunk of the world. With, doesn't this guy have the ultimate job that the world has ever created? He has it all. It, he has it all. He's rich. He's beloved. He's authentic. He, he's writing these books. He's fun. He's the one everybody would most want to have for dinner or to go on a trip with. How could he? How could he ever? find himself hanging in a bathroom at a, like a resort hotel in France. Yeah. Despite the fact that he'd referenced exactly that method of dying over 20 times in like the previous 12 years. That exact oh, method.
0: Oh, well, so he'd been thinking about it for a long time.
1: Right. What and, you and call and it? I I just, ideation. Right, 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 right. Ideation.
0: And that's like... But that he's, he's a classic example of someone... Who mystifies? I don't know what you call them. People with normal brains, because you're like that guy had everything. Right? How could he possibly? In and until in a in a sad way, like unless you experience it, like you can't understand it because it. But even if you experience it, you can't understand it. You just know it's real. Like when I was like, when I was young, and my friends would talk about it, I did not understand it. I was like, I can't compute why you're sad. And now that I've been through it, I at least know like, oh, I get that you might be sad. Um, Like, or whatever you want to call it. But Bourdain's a great example of someone who on the outside, you would be like, he's got everything. Why on earth? Yeah. That's, that should show how insidious this shit is. Like it should show how, how evil it is. Like it turns everything against you. Like I, it, for, I don't know about you, but when I was like, it, it would make every good thing bad and every bad thing worse. It was just like a it 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 didn't allow me to appreciate anything. It was just like everything sucked, and it was it was just it was it was exhausting. I mean, apart from anything else, you're just tired. Like,
1: <laughs> I just... I like that too, for sure. I mean, there's that there's that wonderful another Canadian I love, Glenn Gould said. Every Ooh. every every silver lining has a cloud. That's the personification <laughs> of that <perspective. laughs> That's
0: it. That is it. It is it. It's because you go, like, oh, but, but you know, this good thing happens to you. And you're like, oh, now, now I'm going to be busy. You know, oh, I don't want to go. Right. It's you know? so just become, it's so, just, and it's uh, yeah, it's deeply unpleasant. But, but I will say, so I just hope people.
1: Let's. Yeah.
0: Please oh, go ahead. Sorry. Let I me mean interrupt. I think people in the middle of it, if you have a single listener who is in the middle of it, just understand that i mean you can help there are things you can do to help um therapy was massive for me in the end um yeah. medication didn't work for me like it's there but but i hope you do try to find some help uh i hope you find someone to talk to i hope you know that you're not by yourself in it there's an army of us um and you do just just hang in Eventually, it'll get better. It's just, uh, it's just. I think what suicide is like—you just didn't get to the better place. Um, You didn't last long enough to get there, and that's uh, that's what's tragic about it. It's like life would have would have turned for most people. I think.
1: Yeah, and I don't. I apologize for putting you on the spot with it, but no, it's an important subject. Yeah, and I just, I just felt listening to you talk about it. You know, when you did this podcast, I think many years ago with Longform, um, I know your work, I respect your work, I see how accomplished you are in ways that I've never been, and to hear people like that who can talk about some of the other side of like the internal workings, um, I think is is very helpful to to humanize that issue in a way that I think pe- people we promote ourselves to hurt other people or or that is an impact of it and mm-hmm. we are hurt by other people saying just how fucking thrilled they are with their families and their vacation it's you <laughs> know it's, it's it's the monday after a weekend where everybody's talking about their ski trip and going to hawaii and going to the hamptons or whatever and it's like well i didn't fucking go anywhere so thanks yeah. so goddamn thanks.
0: much thanks to so cool. hear about how perfect your life is but they're not um, perfect. They're not perfect. The people who talk right. the most shit on that stuff are the ones suffering.
1: Right. Well, so you're in a you're in a a, a tough spot. You have this book. You have not become Ernest Hemingway mm-hmm. as a as a result of falling hard. You've fallen hard. You, you've you've just hard. gone. You've gone titular. Yep. um Walk me through there to getting into Esquire because you here's where your life just becomes so cliche with how you get your first job at Esquire. I mean, this is completely typical.
0: All of it. I was clearly on a path from childhood to Esquire, like it all. Every step, hockey Absolutely. arena design. Uh, you know what I will say about the book, and I will say to this to people who have written books that maybe didn't sell: if you have a copy of the book. Uh, you have a copy of a book with your name on it and you put it on someone's desk, it's proof that you can write a book. True. It doesn't matter that it didn't sell. You did it. Uh, and it's proof that you can write like a number of words in a row. Uh, if nothing else, is proof of that. So when I, I went into Esquire, I was at the paper still. Esquire is where I really wanted to work in part because of the boxing stuff. Like Esquire has this tremendous history of boxing writing and sports writing. Norman Mailer. You know, like uh, Hemingway. That's it. Was where I wanted to work, and I went in one day cold, just like I thought. Well, of course, David Granger, the editor in chief of Esquire, would want to meet me. Why wouldn't he want to meet me? Twenty-five-year-old sports writer from Canada. Um, he did not, and the security guard did not let me in. Um, and then a janitor stopped me as I he had overheard the conversation and said, "I needed to need to talk to a guy named Andy Ward." who was, I think at the time the article said it, was his title. And I called Andy, who answered, and I said, can I come see you and talk about... You know, I, I, what I didn't know is how you get found. I didn't know the process of discovery. Hmm. Um, I wasn't expecting a job. I was like, I just want to be on your radar. Uh, and, that's, and that's what I said to Andy. And he was like, okay, well, when you come to New York, and I was like, well, I'm in your lobby. Um... And He's like, well, I've got a meeting now, but if you come back in a little while, and Andy, by his, by the good graces, let me in. I gave him a copy of the book. I had some of my boxing. I, I gave him what I thought at the time was my best story, which was an account of an Arturo Gotti De La Hoya fight. Mm. Uh, um, we had great access. I walked with, with the, uh, I walked with Gotti. Gotti got cut up, and I walked with Gotti from the ring to his dressing room was in his dressing room and then walked with him to the ambulance, um, took him to the hospital. And, uh, and I wrote what I thought was a good story, which of course, because I was an idiot, I made Andy read in front of me, like while I was sitting there. Whoa. Yeah. Not, it was all stupidity. Um, but basically I just wanted him to be like, do I, I wanted, I was like, do I have any hope? Like, tell me if I don't, I wanted a very honest assessment I was like, "Does do I have a chance?" Uh, and he was like, "Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't. I remember he said we wouldn't have nearly as many one sentence paragraphs, but you know, yeah, you got to stop. <laughs> um And that's how I was in Andy's orbit. And then months later, the sports square sports writer, a guy named Charlie Pierce, great writer, excellent, left, and um, they had an opening, and I got the gig. But it was like, for me, it was just I just didn't know it. I, <laughs> One of the advantages of being young is you're, not, you're, you're too stupid to know any better. And that's exactly what every step of the way from just walking in, which he would, I would never do now. Um, and at the time, Esquire, I was in this little building. Like now if you try to walk into Esquire, it's on like the 21st floor of the Hearst Tower. Like at the time, Esquire was in this little building. Uh, the janitor who stops me, like who changes the course of my life because he tells me to call Andy Ward. Like, but he, but he won,
1: he won an Oscar or the, the screenplay for that goodwill hunting.:
0: He did. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, Matt Damon did really well for himself. I thought I beat the janitor, but the janitor beat me bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. just all sorts of stupid things happened. Andy answering the phone, <laughs> And agreeing to meet some idiot who's in his lobby. Amazing. Like it all worked, it all worked. so And yet I was still sad, Bryn. Later you I still got sad and it just like why? It doesn't make any sense, but I did. Well, no, what Esquire. did you
1: feel sad about? What did you feel sad about at that point?
0: Not at that point. At that point I was floating. No, later. Oh. No, when we my thirties, my wobbly thirties. At this point, I was twenty-five and twenty-six, maybe at this point. I'm getting a job at Esquire. Sounds I, good to me. I was shit hot. I had no problems. I had no complaints about anything. Um, yeah, no, it was great. Esquire was the best, the best.
1: Well, I, you, I mean, you don't just have a job there, but you hit the road, you hit the ground running, and you start pumping out these stories where, I mean, you're on your way award. you know, when did you win the National Magazine Award, the first one? Uh,
0: 2003? 2004? I couldn't, uh, pretty early. That was my first not-sports story. 2003 or 4? I started as the sports columnist. And then I ended up... And in fact, one of my... I think the column that kind I of... I would write a column, a 2,500-word column each issue. And I think looking back, like the one that sort of got me really in with David Granger, who was the boss, was a boxing story. It was um, John Ruiz fighting Roy Jones, right? Yeah. Roy yeah, Jones championship came up the heavyweight, for the heavyweight. Yep. And I... Yep. Um, and I had a paragraph about John Ruiz's nose was, um, it was like Roy Jones would like bap it and it would go right. And he was, was like a dissatisfied artist. He'd be like, "Okay, now I'm gonna make it go left. Oh, uh, now now I'm gonna make it go up." And he was just playing with John Ruiz's nose, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, like, interesting." and I wrote this paragraph about John Ruiz's nose going in twenty different directions as Roy hit him. You know, each time. Uh, and I think Granger like that, and that kind of got me on my, that sort of solidified me. I was sort of tenuous until that, I think. But then, yeah. So boxing is everywhere. Everywhere.
1: I had no idea that boxing played this role in, in both of our careers when, on another level, neither of us are boxing people at all, which is
0: funny. Um, yes and no. I mean, yeah, it's a great, you know, it's great sport to write about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a sport to write about. So it's got great characters. What's the, there's a, some expression, like, the smaller the ball, the better the writing, generally, about a sport. So I'd likely golf has the best writing, and baseball's next, and I guess basketball would be the worst. Um, or cycling, if
1: Lance Armstrong right. was still going.
0: You know, but boxing, you know, boxing has this tremendous literary history, and it's got great characters. It's always got great drama. It's got scenes. You know, it's got all the things that make great writing. So in a way, like... Uh, boxing, you know, for you and me, it was like the, it was an, We might not be boxing people in that traditional sense, but it was the ticket. I mean, it was the.
1: Well, I, I just mean in the sense that I, I love boxing, and boxing is a big part, a big part of how I, you know, boxing gave me safety in the world to know how to fight. Man, I didn't have to fight, but on another level, well, I mean, I think I called the podcast tourist information because I, I never lost, I never. I was exposed by being a good gym fighter, and the moment you put me out in the ring in front of a crowd under the lights, I was a different person. I didn't have that ability to perform mm-hmm. the, way I, the way I had shown the potential to perform in a gym, and I, I always have that in my head. that There's a lot of very talented people that it remains in the gym, whatever it is that they're doing. When the red light is, is on, they can't bring it. Which is a huge component in life
0: is being yeah, able to,
1: yeah, not just show up but actually do something with it, even to if turn you it
0: to turn it on, to turn it on when you have to turn it on, like when not because you want to but because it's time. So uh, it. in, in golf, they, they talk about uh, driving range champions, you know, guys who can lace the ball in the driving
1: range <laughs> exactly,
0: and then you actually put a flag in a hole, and they're like, oh, fuck, you know, yeah, no, to be actually to walk out there basically naked in front of 20,000 people with a chance of getting the shit kicked out of you in front of them all. Like, it's a tough nut. Like, boxers have – especially boxers who deep down know they're going to get kicked. Like, to be able to walk out there is something. Those guys have my eternal respect.
1: Well, and so tell me how, how does this – your background with, with being a sports writer, a boxing writer, how does it inform you become this miraculous – magician with profiles where, I mean, I was looking at the the array of stuff that you cover from astronauts to Roger Ebert to the fabulous magician that we first talked about, Teller, um, Hugh Hefner getting older, Terry Thompson and um, exotic animals. Um, you grow into somebody very different from, I mean, I remember the National Post coming out in Canada and thinking, it was kind of what you described, like, like, where do these fucking people come from? I've never heard any of these people. This seems oh, like yeah, a very honestly. half-baked paper, uh, you know. But it wasn't nobody. You go, right. And you go from that to becoming an ace at a major publication with its history. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of aces there. I interviewed Tom Juneau. He's a two-time National Magazine Award winner, too, but... You're, you're on the all-star team, and, and you're winning some major stuff, and, and this is challenging material. So I wonder, like, where did it come from that you could dig in and pull that out of you? I Going back
0: to I don't know. I don't, um, I don't know. It just I appreciate those kind words, which are very kind. Um, I loved it, I guess is the answer. Like, I love doing it. I love... I got so lucky in the sense that I found a job. I mean, I took a circuitous route. uh, Mm -hmm. But once I found it, like, I've never had a moment's doubt about whether I should be a writer. Like, I love every aspect of it. I love meeting people. I love talking to them. I love reporting. I love the detective work. I love the physical act of writing. I like editing. I like being edited. I love polishing I like the little little praise you get when something comes out. Like I like, there's nothing about the process I don't like. Like I love all of it, and I think, I think that shows. I think I think you can't. It sort of it was a, it's a cliche, but I believe in it. So that like, you can't fake like heart, um, okay. and I tell young writers all the time. Like if I'm talking to a class of writers. I'm like, I'm, if I'm hiring one person out of this room, I'm not hiring the one who can write the prettiest sentence or I'm not hiring the richest person. I'm hiring the one who, like, wants it the most. I'm hiring the one who who will run through a fucking wall to write a story. And I think I'm I'm that guy. I just... Uh, I don't think I'm a particularly good writer of sentences. Like, at Esquire, I was definitely the worst um, writer. Like, the guy, in terms of, like, putting words in order, I was the least talented um, guy there. But I would put my reporting up against anybody, and I would put my, you know, my desire up against most people. Um, And I think that's what it is. It wasn't any kind of, like lightning strike or it's just time i read constantly i still read all the time i write every day i would write if i wasn't being paid for it it's just um i don't have a good answer just it it's like you know going back to that teller magician story he he doesn't know why it's magic for him and i don't know why it's writing for me it's just it, it just is i'm just very lucky that i found it that i got but i and i get to do it for a living like it's um Yeah, it's just luck.
1: I wonder when you talked about that even after this success coming so quickly after, um, at at least in terms of publishing standards of failure with falling hard, um, that one of the things that I connect to when I was reading your stuff or reading anybody's stuff is I'm always trying to imagine how it was put together. I can't do that. I can't watch a movie without thinking Mm -hmm. how many times, how long did it take them to find this shot? Who are they drawing from for this? What's the philosophy behind it? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like it's weird to watch a Steven Spielberg movie where this is a 70 year old man who has infinite money to make whatever he wants. And he's Steven, you're not 12 years old and your parents are divorced. Like we need to get past this at some point, please. (laughs) Um, when I'm reading you, what I really like is you have a certainty behind you in that, like you say, I can tell you know you're a writer. You don't need somebody's permission to do it. You have your passport. You're a citizen. But there's an insecurity that I can feel how hard you're working to make this stuff be as good as it can possibly be. That's a rare combination in, in writers, in my experience.
0: That's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. It's true. I'm confident in the sense that like, I know I'm a writer – but a lot of my motivation is fear-based. Uh
1: right, right. right, right. <laughs> like,
0: you know, at Esquire we had I mean, one of the dirty little secrets about magazines is, you know, we were all on one year contracts. Huh. And I was there for 14 years. You know, that's 14 times where I'm like, I gotta I gotta earn my way back in here. Like I, you know, if I had been let go at Esquire when I was twenty eight, I would have been devastated. I probably wouldn't do it right. Like it and when you're when you're writing alongside guys like Tom, you know, like it's terrifying. Yeah. Like you put a story of yours next to the following man. See how oh, you feel about yeah. It. yeah. yeah. About it. <laughs> and So every time like someone would be like, Oh my God, you're so lucky writing for Escrime. I'd be like, yes, but now, but also it's got some pressures. <laughs> you know? Oh so, yeah. So, and a big audience, you know? And it's like, so you, you want to, so, yeah, I mean, I I, I I don't have imposter syndrome, I don't think. Like, I believe I'm a writer, um, but I was always scared, and I'm still always, like, now I'm a screen a screenwriter for the first, like, I'm writing, I'm, I'm working on a film script now for the first time, you know, where, where I'm, I'm doing a rewrite now, paid by a studio. It's terrifying, bro. It's terrifying. Huh. And I'm, like, scared every minute I'm working on it that I'm going to get it like but I'm gonna fuck it up and it's like so it's yeah maybe, maybe, I don't know if it's everybody I, I have no idea how universal that is among writers that sort of weird interplay between confidence and insecurity like you have to be pretty confident to put something out there sure because at, at the root you're saying this is worth reading this is worth your time to read I believe this is worth it uh, otherwise you wouldn't put it out there no. and so so you have to have some level of confidence. But I also think most writers, you know, are like inveterate fart sniffers and they just like (laughs) are terrified Um, and competitive and gross. You know what I mean? There's all that in it as well.
1: Well, I guess I guess what it is for me, I was talking about this with my girlfriend the other day going for our like coronavirus hike.
0: While you Excursion. Walk, around, walk around the
1: balcony <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, basically, just walk around and stare at people with masks and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were saying, like, I love readers, like to watch the human face engaged in reading is one of the great pleasures of my life. like mm-hmm. like i I whenever I think of my dad, even I've been three thousand miles away from him for ten years now in New York. Um, the image that stays with me that I, this is my most loving image is to watch him read something. It could be the newspaper, it could be a book, but to see the face engaged in that private theater, the ugliest look for me personally that I have a visceral repulsion to is an experience is happening and you're immediately jotting down notes. It's like, just fucking live for a moment. There's something about it where I'm just like, just fucking live your life. It's a disease that you can't live your life. You can't just be present. You have to be the fly on the wall observing. And that gives yeah. you this authority that other people don't have. And now everybody is doing it with a camera. Which in a very similar way to how we would do it as a journalist. And Ooh. I get why we're jotting down the notes. But there's something about it where it's like, this was why I loved Cuba. Because nobody was photographing shit or recording shit. They were just present. There yeah, was no this- cell phones. No cell phones. They were as present watching boxing as the boxers were doing it. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, human beings used to do this. Mm -hmm. They used to go to a concert and actually be present for a while. Mm
0: -hmm. But that is what you're saying. I agree with you totally. Um, I'm not a guy who holds up my phone at a concert, (laughs) which is something I will never understand. Because you know what? A thousand other people are doing it, and they'll put it on YouTube. And you're good. If you really want to go watch this concert again, which you're not going to, but if you really want to, you can go get it on YouTube. You don't have to do that. You, you can watch it with your own eyes without anything in between you. It's much more beautiful. Um, so I'm they do totally, a press totally row, ready. too. They do a press oh.
1: row. Your second row at press row, and they're filming it. I'm like, you're already at press row.
0: Yeah. You're going to get a transcript? Of, like, you, it, 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 It's ridiculous. It's like, it doesn't. none of it makes sense. But... What I will say is it is hard. Once you're used to engaging with the world as an observer, as like a professional observer, like you were talking about how you break shit down when yeah. you read it, you can't just turn that off. I mean, that's, no. that's one of the perils of doing this for a living. Like I found, you know, as now that I'm doing screenwriting, like I watched Sicario last night, which i had seen before, and I spent the whole time imagining the script okay, what's he writing now? Why is he doing this scene? What's happening here? Why is she doing that? What's his thought? You know, like, I just can't. I can't just watch it anymore. Um, no. So I understand what you're saying, but I think one of the sort of, like, slight curses of our profession is that it can be hard to just sit back and disengage and watch. You know what I mean? It's like, it's... it's, it's I'm constantly running up. I'm the same way with you reading. I'm like, I can't read anything without breaking it down into pieces, like, it's just it's instinct at this point.
1: No, it, it is, and I get it, and I mean, I do, I do it too, so maybe I'm just projecting here to some degree, but the writers,
0: what we were discussing we both hate was... We both, hate, we both hate that, and that's, oh, I yeah. that's, legitimate. No, that's a legitimate should,
1: thing to hate. They should be cattle prodded or drenched and electrocuted, but I think, I think it's that I love... <laughs> There's some Hungarian blood in me so you have to pardon me when <laughs> it gets rather extreme. Yeah, that's good. We're not known as the most, you know. You invent the Rubik's Cube, you've got you're in for something. Um, but I just think that some some writers like Junot too, I never I never met him. I I never corresponded with him, but once you start talking to somebody, if I if I'm relating to them that they're a writer, most of the time I feel like I'm with a sick person. Like, like the OCD stuff you were talking about, I'm kind of like, Ugh. I, I don't want to meet them. It's enough to find them on the page doing their performance art, you know,
0: theater stuff. I don't need more. Yeah, don't meet them. Don't never meet them. No, that's sometimes true. Sometimes you don't want to meet them. Sometimes you meet them and they're delightful. That's, uh,
1: that's the problem, though, is the ones that are like readers first are the like, most fun in the whole world to be, be around. They're delightful. But that's like five percent of them, I think. I mean, at least the ones I've met.
0: Yeah. I mean Tom's really nice. Tom's got Tom has his own. You know, Tom, I tweeted this the other day because Tom had this theory about writing writing, four stages of writing. writing. I'm a genius, I'm a genius, I'm shit, I'm shit. I'm a genius. genius. I survived. I survived. And it's like weirdly true. But it also means that Tom Juno. Who's been nominated for he's like nominated fourteen national American American awards, American, like awards? Yeah. Goes through an "I'm shit" phase. Yeah. How the fuck does he go through "I'm shit"? That's crazy. Well,
1: but but you know, I, I mean, I brought him up because I could tell as we were talking that um, he was present talking. He wasn't reading from his own script of "I'm Tom Juno," like something distant. Oh, yeah, no, he's not uh, like that at all. Yeah, he's not like that at all. And so I was kind of comfortable. I, I mean, we're Canadian, our national pastime is apologizing, so I'm not seeking conflict with people that I respect, but I wanted to bring up what led him to try to out Kevin Spacey and how did his ego deal Ooh. with the Ooh. aftermath of that. Ooh. And That's it wasn't a spicy gotcha. It was a, it was a spicy meatball and it wasn't a gotcha kind of thing but he went right at it and it's like that's a brave guy who's willing to look at the real motivations that got him to that place and again like talking to you about suicide or that kind of thing some people will take that on and other people will be like you know what fuck you for bringing it up and it doesn't really have it, it's not about you being an asshole bringing it up it's just they don't want to revisit anything that doesn't conform to a certain way of looking at themselves, I think. Or
0: or it can just be not like not pleasant. There might be yeah, times, that's, that's like, like there might be times in my life that someone brought up depression and suicide. Like if I was in the middle of something, I wouldn't talk about it. Right, it's
1: right, like right. it's like staring that's into true.
0: the sun. Like I'm in a good place, so it's like okay to talk about it. I feel like I'm removed from it almost. It's like looking at someone else in a movie. Um, I think sometimes you're right. Like people don't want it to be part of their narrative. Their personal narrative um for me i always felt like i ask questions for a living so if someone asked me a question i should probably answer it <laughs> <laughs> i always thought it was like vaguely hypocritical if i don't um which has led me into trouble because i've definitely said things that i should not have said because i guess i answered something honestly um but i've written things like honestly that i should not have written and it's 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 occasionally it doesn't work for you but most of the time i'm like well i should talk about this
1: my last question, you're, you're leaving the incredibly lucrative world of magazine publishing for TV. That's odd.
0: Odd. I will say, occasionally, I'm a colossal idiot in most matters of general life. Um, I occasionally have some forethought. And so, you know, 2000, I was at a newspaper. The Internet's coming. Uh, I remember I, I was very I was in the newsroom when I first saw uh, a little-known website called Google, mm. uh, and I went oh, and I was like mm, breaking news. That's gonna mm, magazines. I should go to magazines. There's no one's gonna read six thousand words on a internet, but they might read a break. So I so I jumped. I went from newspapers to magazines, and then 2016, I was like hmm magazines this is tricky but netflix and tv and all that that seems to be going pretty well so so i i did frogger again Uh, i got very lucky again i have no great lessons just get super lucky get someone who's really nice to take a chance on you for no reason uh that's that's you just throw yourselves at the feet of somebody which is what i did again and um yeah, one of my Esquire pieces has become a TV show that will be on Netflix, I suspect, sometime in the fall. We've just finished shooting our first season. Uh, who knows what all this stuff that's going on, when it will actually come out. Uh, it's called Away with Hilary Swank and Josh Charles, and um, that's exciting. And So I worked in the writer's room there, and now I'm doing some film stuff. And Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for this, Chris. I really appreciate your time. This was a delightful.
0: Pleasure. Uh, let me know when you have it all together, and I will. Uh, I'll shout it from my multiple Twitter accounts. Okay.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, man.
0: No problem. Take it easy. Thanks, Chris.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon, Sweby, Dolgan Media myself Bryn Jonathan Butler and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.